Hi, everyone. This is the WorkTech Podcast, brought to you by WorkTech. This is George LaRock. I'm your host, and this is where we explore everything related to the future of work and the technology and people that are shaping it. Welcome. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to WorkTech. It's George LaRock, and uh, I'm really happy uh, to bring this conversation to the work tech community. I'm excited to introduce you all to Andrew Flowers, the labor economist at AppCast and uh, also the voice behind the site, Recruitonomics. Um, AppCast is a programmatic ad technology that focuses on jobs and the job market. Um, very strategic move on their part to uh, to bring an economist into the fold. Um, I'm thrilled to have Andrew here to help us try to make some sense about the current economic climate. Uh, welcome, Andrew. Hey, George. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I, um, I you know, we've spoken before and I always enjoy our conversations and I always get a lot of good feedback uh, from folks when when they're recorded. Uh, so and I know, you know, I'm, I just want to jump right in because uh, making the most out of the time we have you for, uh, I know the question on everybody's mind um, that you may or may not be able to answer, but maybe share some insight is all, it's all around the macroeconomic climate. I mean, are we headed for a recession? That's yeah, it. that that is the uh, uh, the four million dollar question. Um, maybe is my answer. And so. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We're definitely seeing the U.S. economy slow. So the the term I really uh, have adopted from Chris Dorides, an economist at Moody's Analytics, is slow session. So um, the U.S. economy is definitely slowing. Uh, when we look at the data coming in, um, we saw a very rapid recovery uh, from the short and sharp recession induced by COVID in 2020. We've seen the U.S. economy just boom in its recovery out of that recession, uh, but we're seeing slowing now. Um, and uh, there's kind of two important sectors of the economy that are going through significant corrections. One is the housing market, yep. uh, because just to take a step back, well, why are there recession fears right now? And the, the culprit in one word is inflation, right? We saw in 2022 last year, um, inflation reach the highest point in 40 years. And so uh, the Federal Reserve, our nation's central bank, has aggressively increased interest rates to kind of tamp down on this overheating economy and, and hopefully slow prices uh, or slow price growth. So uh, the, the two sectors that we're seeing bear the brunt of that increase in interest rates are one, housing. So one, housing is definitely going through a correction. We see home sales, uh, home prices turn negative. Uh, in 2022. So the other sector is technology, right? We've seen week after week, it seems um, another headline grabbing um, uh, announcement of layoffs. Maybe it's Microsoft or Twitter or Meta. Um, and what I want to emphasize is the economy, while it's slowing from this post-pandemic recovery boom, and we see the weakness in tech and in housing, um, and I would argue that weakness is primarily because of the, the higher interest rates to combat inflation, we aren't we are not seeing much weakness elsewhere. So, for example, consumer spending um, is very strong, even despite the inflation. After you adjust for um, inflation, real consumer spending on, say, durable goods, for example, is up 25 percent 
compared wow. to February of 2020. We see very strong spending from consumers on services. So uh, leisure and hospitality, so travel, restaurants are booming in 2022. And of course, uh, the crown jewel of this good side of the economic ledger is the labor market. The labor market is super strong. In the U.S., we have a unemployment rate at a 50-year low at 3.5%. Yeah. We have 1.7 job openings, unfilled jobs, for every one unemployed job, job seeker. So we have a very tight labor market. We aren't seeing the weakness in the tech sector. We aren't seeing the layoffs there spread like contagion to other sectors of the economy. We're not seeing widespread layoffs at the moment. So the, the term I like to use, slow session, that comes from Moody's Analytics, is we're likely to see the economy continue to slow in 2023. It's debatable whether we'll go into a recession, because how, how could you have a recession if you have a 50-year low in the unemployment rate, if consumer spending and business investment is so strong? So it's a mixed bag. The nuanced picture here is that we're definitely seeing the economy slow. There's a um, significant probability, say 40%, that the at least that the economy will have a mild recession in 2023. But there's, I would argue, a slightly higher probability that we're going to avoid a recession in 2023. Yeah. It, I've heard people say, you know, the traditional models um, aren't, aren't staying true or, or th this is just, this is, is this the result of, um, you know, everything we, we talked about, uh, that was exciting in the nineties about, you know, the world getting more flat, you know, companies competing globally. Uh, when you talk about the job market, you know, the skills shortage, uh, all of this. And, and there's so many of these, these tropes that people put out and it's like, okay, well it's, it's come true now. And the, it does, is the economy itself different or, or is it, is it just zooming in on the labor market? That's what's different right now. We're really seeing an historically strong labor market. I, and I think that's worth dwelling on. I kind of, you know, glossed over it pretty quickly earlier, but it's it's pretty remarkable to think about the idea of full employment. What is full employment? It's the idea that everyone who wants a job can find one. And that wage growth is uh keeping up with inflation, uh, and that workers are getting real increases or inflation adjusted increases in their living standards. And what we've seen is half of that in 2022. We've seen that um, if you want a job, if you're a job seeker, you can find a job, right? Because we have over 10 million job openings in the U.S. as of November of last year. And this is a uh, near record high. I think in 2022, we did hit a record high of a little over 11 million. But to give you some context, pre-pandemic in 2018, 2019, the labor market, which was considered at that time quite strong, had six, seven million job openings. Yep. So we're, we're considerably 40% plus above that pre-pandemic level. So there's lots of choices if you're a job seeker. And second of all, the uh, wage growth, while in 2022, it didn't keep up with inflation, we have seen over the, if you take a step back and look over the last two years, three years since the um, COVID recession hit, real wage growth is quite robust, particularly so for lower wage workers. So this is actually quite a good economy if you're um, an hourly worker, if you work in retail or food service. You're, if you're a lower wage worker, this economy is actually ironically giving you wage growth that exceeds inflation. So the wage growth for like, you know, restaurant workers, hotel workers is actually quite strong. So the idea of full employment, if I had to capture it in a statistic is, it's very simple. Think of like the employment to population ratio. So, uh, 
what fraction of people are employed, either full-time, part-time, in, in whatever uh, fashion they like. And when you zoom in on that prime age cohort of workers, 25 to 54-year-olds, so excluding the uh, distortions of, say, the baby boomer generation, that's mm-hmm. that's really escalating their retirements right now. When you look at that prime age cohort of 25 to 54-year-olds and you look at that employment to population ratio, it's at or, or just under 80%. And just to give you some sense, that's pretty close to other markers historically of full employment. So the late 1990s or actually just before the COVID pandemic, we had really okay. strong when – we, when we look historically, when has the labor market been really good for job seekers? All the metrics today line up to say, hey, this is a really strong job market. The flip side of this, George, as you know, is if you're a recruiter, if you're a company that's trying to hire, it's very, very challenging right now because not only are you dealing with a macroeconomic environment that's producing a very tight, tight job market, right? You're you're having fewer job seekers to uh, pull from. You're also having to deal with these big structural changes that are happening, for example, around remote work and the kind of stigma that has been reduced the last three years about remote work, and now job seeker preferences are changing. You're have you're having to deal with changes in uh, earnings and wage expectations. Um, you know, job seekers want higher pay, and, and there's kind of a negotiation, a tug of war around that. And then, of course, just the the, the broader changes in in globalization. Right? We, we've seen you mentioned the idea of the world is flat. This popular notion in the 1990s and in 2000s of kind of globalization kind of is here to stay. Well, what we're seeing is kind of the reversal of some of this. Right? With hmm. with supply chains as weak as they are the last two years, a lot of domestic manufacturers are reshoring their facilities, reshoring their industrial manufacturing facilities. We're seeing kind of a fracturing of global trade linkages, whether it's Brexit, whether it's a tension between China and the US. So all this to sum up is it's a really dynamic, fluid situation for recruiters, for employers. They have to deal with the tight labor market at the macro level. They have to deal with these shifting structural trends in technology and globalization. But it's a uh, it, it's 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 a hard moment to forecast. But that's that's what we do here at Recruitonomics. We we, we yeah. try to give some insight. Yeah. So so I, I know that at Recruitonomics, you uh, you you're providing a lens for HR professionals recruiting you know talent acquisition leaders to monitor. But are 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 there you know um, metrics or uh, things that you would you know you would tell them these are the things you should be keeping your eye on as you're you know we're thinking about workforce planning we're thinking about headcount um, you know with the economy as the backdrop. Yeah, that's a great question. I would keep my eye on three things: two related to the labor market to give you a sense of. Where's the labor market going? And then one indicator for the broader macro economy. So let's start there. Uh, I think consumer spending is huge in terms of um, the future of the economy. The U.S. gross domestic product, our GDP, over two-thirds of it is consumption um, by by consumers, by households. Uh, and, and when you hone in on that consumer spending figures that are released every month, near, near the end of the month, you can, after adjusting for inflation, look at the trajectory of consumer spending. As that as that goes, so goes the economy. So that's the macro indicator I would look at for HR and TA leaders in terms of just the broad macro economy. But then the two indicators about the labor market, if you're trying to make you know workforce planning decisions and in, 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 um, forecast, the two indicators about the labor market I would watch are one, uh, job openings. So 
uh, right now, I don't think the unemployment rate is is the best indicator of Slack or the or, or an indicator of how how many job seekers there are. Okay. A better way to think about it is like what's what's my competition doing? What's the labor demand in the whole economy or in my industry? And the best way to approximate labor demand or competition is job openings, unfilled uh, positions, and. With higher interest rates and this intention by policymakers, by the Federal Reserve, to slow the economy by by design, right, to lower inflation, we want to slow the economy. What the Fed is hoping to do is not see an increase in layoffs or unemployment uh, per se, but to see the number of unfilled job vacancies, these job openings come down. So that's the first indicator I'd watch on the labor market is how much is that falling? And we've seen it fall a little bit, but as I said... Over 10 million job openings, well above the pre-pandemic level. So it's still indicating a lot of labor demand, a lot of intent to hire. That's the first. The second indicator in terms of HR and TA leaders, what 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 do you want to look for in terms of gauging a recession or specifically its impact on the labor market? Is I would look at week. This is weekly data, so it's very high frequency. Every Thursday morning in the U.S., I would look at unemployment insurance claims because I would avoid the uh, headlines uh, in the business press. So I used to be a reporter and I, I don't mean to take a, a, a cheap uh, shot at the media, but there is a negativity bias. There's this mm. notion of if it bleeds, it leads, right? No one is going to read a story that Procter & Gamble hired 500 people last month. That's just kind of boring. But if Meta or if Amazon is going through a round of layoffs, wow, that's going to make front page news. It's going to scare people into this sense of a recession is imminent. I wouldn't look at layoff announcements as a good indicator of weakness in the labor market. I would look at this weekly measure of unemployment insurance claims, because if people get laid off, if you're a worker and you get laid off more often than not, unless it's very a very strong job market, um, you're going to apply for unemployment benefits, right? You're going to you know, ha- have some uh, cash flow to get you over until your next position. And what we see here, George, this is amazing. Despite all these tech layoffs, there's no increase in weekly unemployment insurance yeah. claims. No increase. So the labor market is super strong, but that's where I would look. That's the second indicator. If I'm an HRTA leader, I would look and see if, if layoffs are really going to spread, you would first see it start to pick up in weekly uh, UI claims. Interesting. That's that's a great tip. Um, so, uh, you know, I have this lens uh, for HR leaders and TA leaders that is looking at, it's really looking at the 10 trends around technology and work tech. Uh, for the tech providers, you know, we're trying to make sense of the market and what, you know, because the, the uh, you know, one step removed from the hiring market and, and retention um, is, are the folks providing technology into that space to help with issues in, in the workplace? So, um, you know, COVID hit, and I think the whole industry took a step back, took a pause and thought, here it comes. But they had, this industry had its best years ever from a VC investment perspective, from a from a lot of the tech providers who are already in the market had their best years ever. And now this is happening in the economy and it's, they're not having their best year ever, but they're, they're having like their second or third best year year ever yeah. and uh and it's confusing and it's surreal and this this you know the 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 labor market used to be like the the when you saw the layoffs or the the economic news the the layoffs started next it was one of the leading indicators and you knew to tighten the belt um but 
this this was detached from COVID. It seems detached from the macroeconomic uh, issues. Are the are the issues in the workforce around uh, available talent, as as you mentioned, um, the uh, uh, labor market participation? Um, you know, ratios uh, that you talked about of, uh, you know, population to workers, are they so big that it could it outlast a recession that because that that's what's been in my mind, like, are, are we, we may not be, um, you know, counter cyclical or detached forever. But are the issues so systemic and so big when it comes to the labor market that, we're going. We could ride through if the let's say if the recession doesn't go too deep. Is that what? What do you, do you have thoughts on that? Or yeah, I do. I do. And so, just bear me, bear with me for a second. Yeah. My wife is an English major, and so she, she would she would tell me about Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and there's a famous quote I think by Tolstoy that says, "Every happy family, um, uh, uh, every unhappy family is different, and every happy family is the same." And so I, I always always think that's funny. But the the story here in terms of the economy is. You know, a good economy is kind of the same. And everyone can point out a good economy. Wage growth yeah. is strong. Unemployment is low. But every recession is different, right? So every just as un, every unhappy family is unhappy in their own okay. way. Yeah. I think that's how the quote goes from Tolstoy. Every recession is bad in its own different way. And so the idea of the economy slowing, the slow session notion in 2023, is that it's not the same script. It's not the same playbook. Yeah. It's not the same kind of downturn as past downturns. So think about if you go back to... 2007 to 2009, the Great Recession or the global financial crisis, I had just joined the Federal Reserve at that moment. And that downturn was very, very different than anything we experienced uh, for several generations, right? Uh, until, say, you had to go back to the Great Depression to really see a debt-fueled financial crisis, right? So what triggered the kind of layoffs and the spike in the unemployment rate, I think, to 10% in 2009 was, well, we had bank failures, we had kind of over-leveraged households and businesses, and then we had financial crises that limited credit, mm. and it kind of triggered this contagion of layoffs and lower demand, lower spending. That kind of debt-fueled financial crisis recession is nothing like what we're experiencing right now. When we look at the balance sheets of households and of firms, of companies, they're, in other words, their debt ratios, they're yeah. much, much lower than 2007. So Balance sheets are very healthy um, in terms of demand. If anything, demand is overshooting the potential of the economy. We're overheating, right? Hence mm -hmm. the inflation versus in 2007 to 2009, we were undershooting spending. So just as, say, for example, the 2020 um, COVID-induced recession was different than the previous global financial crisis because the COVID recession was like what economists would call a supply shock. Workers can't work. Goods can't make it to uh, market. They can't tra traverse between ports. We yeah. have clogged supply chains. Just as the 2020 um, uh, shock of COVID was a different kind of recession than 2007 and 2009, this slowdown is going to be different too. And so this this notion I, I, I want to tell recruiters is um, for 15 years, and this, this is going to sound a little insulting, but I, I don't mean it to me, is for about 15 years since the uh, Great Recession, I think recruiters have lost the muscle memory of, of what it means to, to find talent in a tight labor market. Why? The whole 2010s, that whole decade plus very slow recovery from the Great Recession, you saw four or five unemployed job seekers per one job opening. 
just organically, passively, you can put out a job posting and get a ton of candidates. You would have your choice, a lineup of people, frankly, desperate for work. And guess what? The script has flipped. The, the, uh, the tables have turned. It's a very different market. It's much more of a job seeker market. And so for the last 15 years, I think a lot of people in recruiting and TA and HR, they, they lost that muscle memory. You have to go back to, say, the late 90s to find a labor market where it was so advantageous for job seekers. And so I think that's part of the paradigm shift here is just it's been many years since a lot of people in our space have realized, wait a second, I don't have the leverage that I had in 2014 or 2011, especially. I don't have the leverage over job seekers. It's it's a job seeker market. And we have to adapt to that because I would argue that kind of condition is going to persist in our future. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's a great perspective. And um, I think the, you know, I've been like I said, in the industry for 30 years and the, I've worked through a few of these and that I can absolutely, uh, attest they all, that none of them hit evenly. They're not, it's, it's not the same. Um, you know, they, they may feel the same on your checking account or your pocketbook or however you, whatever, you know, uh, however you want to phrase it. Um, and for the individuals going through it while the job market's great, uh, you know, it, we should pause for a moment. We, it, it, for some folks, there's a struggle and it's difficult, and you know we're we're not minimizing any of that as well, of course. So bringing it back to the recruiters and HR leaders, one of the things that um, is different about this job market is the um, there's you know regulation and le- state legislation around wage transparency hmm. um, that adds a. Uh, a big wrinkle. And it's almost, you know, from my perspective, there are a handful of states that have legislated this and you must attach wages to jobs that you're advertising. You must, you must show that. So it almost doesn't matter whether you're in one of those states or not Give in, in a hybrid and remote work for, you know, if I know what I'm going to get paid here and not over there, or if I know what they're paying there, it, it impacts my perspective over here. So how, what, what are you seeing as far as you know the impact on the 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 labor market and the recruiting industry with that those new that those new regulations i really believe that pay transparency legislation is a an earthquake to recruit okay. and um it started over the last few years and just to take a step back the genesis of a lot of the these state laws is around equity, right? So, uh, for yes. example, I'll, I'll mention the Colorado law is called the Equal Pay for Equal Work Act. As many people are probably aware, there are documented um, gaps in terms of uh, male-female wage uh, yep. wages um, and and also racial wa- uh, wage gaps. And so, the genesis of these laws at the state level was, hey, let's require employers to put pay ranges, whether it's a wage range, like. You know, warehouse associate or forklift driver, fifteen to eighteen dollars an hour. Let's require the employer to put that in the job posting, or maybe it's a salary. Registered nurse, sixty to eighty thousand dollars a year. Put that in the job posting. Um, so Colorado really led the way because while other states historically have passed legislation that required uh, employers to provide pay ranges upon request, mm-hmm. Colorado was the first state to really say, no, you have to put it in the job description if you're going to make it a, a public classified job posting, right? And so this really triggered a cascade. Now that many other states have become aware that this is a popular notion among the uh, voting public, you saw California, you saw Mm -hmm. New York State, actually New York City itself has already instituted this, Washington State. Um, A huge 
uh, avalanche of jurisdictions are joining Colorado, joining other states. And so in 2023, later this year, at some point when everything uh, um, becomes effective, more than one in every five people in the U.S. labor force are going to live in a place that requires pay transparency. So um, that's huge. This is huge. So in, in, in terms of the research we've done at Recruitonomics on the impact of the Colorado law, what we found is it actually, ironically, is pretty good for recruiters. I know, I know, employers don't like it uh, in, in many cases because they're you. Like I mentioned earlier, they're accustomed to this bargaining power that they can right. kind of keep that asymmetric information that they can keep a stronger negotiating position by not disclosing what they want to offer, and they'll kind of see who they get. Well, what we found is, yeah, there are in Colorado at least a, a, a noticeable decline in job postings because there's some people, there's some employers who don't want to play by those rules. So they'll they'll pull their job postings out of Colorado. But what we found is job seeker engagement spiked in Colorado. And to me, this makes sense because if, if looking for a job in America, in our culture right now, if it's a lot like looking for a home on Zillow where there's no home prices, then it sucks, right? Because you're just, what we find in America is around 15% of job postings pre-Colorado had any mention of pay, pay rangers. Okay, okay. And so now that you're realizing, wait a second, employers, it was one thing for them to move around Colorado and pull job postings in Colorado. But in 2023, when California and New York come online, that's much harder to navigate. Those are huge markets. And it's going to kind of twist the arm of a lot of recruiters to just comply nationwide. And to your point, George, especially if you're recruiting for remote work, if you're just looking for a software developer anywhere in the country, well, if you want to abide by those laws and recruit someone in California or New York or Colorado, might as well just go ahead and put the, the pay posting, the pay range in there. And so what we find is it's actually ironically good for recruiters because initially you're going to see some competition fade away because they won't want to oblige by the pay transparency law, but you're going to see more job seeker interest, more active job seekers because they're scrolling through. It's appealing to kind of shop, so to speak, and look yeah. for potential positions. And the final thing I'll say on this, George, is that it's going to be an earthquake for recruiting because it's going to change the whole talent acquisition funnel concept, right? Right now, when I talk to recruiters, they're always about like, okay, how do we fill the funnel? More, more hire, you know, more candidates. Well, when you institute uh, pay transparency, what we found uh, at Recruitonomics when we did a second study of this Colorado law is that applications go down, but the quality of the candidate goes up. In, in other words, there's self-sorting. There's no longer this uh, frustrating process. Maybe some people listening have been through this, where you go through many rounds of an interview. You're excited about a job. You, in in your mind, you've already kind of made your mind up to take the job, and then the offer comes in, and it's so insultingly off from what you wanted that everyone's time is wasted. The recruiter's time is wasted. The job seeker's time is wa wasted. What we find now is that pay transparency lowers the volume at the top of funnel. It lowers the number of candidates because why? They're self-sorting. That they're already yeah. kind of on board with what the pay. Uh, range will be, they're okay with that. So while that initially changes your mind as a recruiter, it makes you scared, right? You Wait a second, I'm getting fewer candidates when I post pay ranges. What we find is the hireable candidates, the candidate quality is so much higher from that pool of people who self-select that the ultimate cost per hire is often in many cases lower, even if the cost per application is higher. So think about that. So the conversion from cost per application to cost per hire is a function of how hireable are these candidates? Are they high quality right. candidates? And what we find is pay transparency lowers the volume of initial applicants, but it increases the quality of your candidate pool. Yeah. I imagine uh, that, I mean, that would, I know that that would carry right through to speed uh, in the process as well. There's, there's the, um, 
you know, the classic bump in the process where uh, you're getting ready to make an offer and then you're looking at the ranges and having to possibly go get approvals to go outside of a band or justify if candidates are self-sorting and selecting into a range on the, you're avoiding a lot of that tension later exactly. in the process, which can delay and you can lose candidates because of it as well. So back, back to spending more on ads and the, the cost going up. So that's, that's really interesting. I, are you familiar with what, what they do in the, um, in the UK? I know that they um, they've got uh, regulations where employers report from an equity perspective mm. um, on, you know, to the government and every year it's usually around this time, I think, or since it's been in place, you know, companies start to get either uh, applauded or dinged based on the fact that whether it's gender or racial based, they're, they're equity or inequity. Um, do you think that, you know, if, if the voting publics uh, and I think pay equity is an excellent thing and I like transparency so that that's where I'm coming from. Do you think that with the voting public, um, fee, you know, being behind this, could you see the U.S. start to, you know, do you do you think that's in the cards for our government? Yeah, I I I, I don't know if it's going to happen at a national level, but I don't want to say it's out of the question because the truth is, you know, our politics at the national level are very polarized, as we all know. Yeah. I'm not going to rehearse yeah. this. Yeah. This is old news, but. Uh, we have seen the pay transparency issue, maybe thankfully, not become politicized. In other words, um, while red states have yet to really adopt this in mass, it's mostly a blue state phenomenon. There's some purple states in here that are kind of uh, finding it appealing as well, like Colorado being an example. Um, so, so far, it hasn't become a flashpoint. There's been no push at the national level, that I, that big push that's uh, gaining traction that I'm aware of. So I do think this patchwork of state laws is going to increase. And with California and New York and maybe other states that are big enough, you could see it become like how you find in like um, the car market or the textbook market mm. or other markets where state laws for, from a few big states can shape the national market. And so I think that could continue. But your broader point, while I'm not aware of all the details in the UK, right. that's new to me. I do know that as a comparison, the US is not, you know, um, is not in the same place other labor markets are. So Japan, the UK, there's other cultures where it's just much, much more common, a higher, a much higher fraction of job postings mention pay transparency and, uh, or pay, pay ranges rather, and have for decades. And yeah. so th there's actually good economic history research that the U S had actually decades ago, a more, a higher fraction of postings that mention, uh, pay. So this this idea that like it's awkward to talk about money, that like, no, you don't put it up front in the job posting. This is just, you know, the worst excuse in history is we've always done it this way, but we've always done it this way. Yeah. Well, the, often the case is no, we, we haven't always done it this way. It's just the function that the last few decades have been very advantageous for employers in the US and they've not been so good for workers. And now that this is flipping, you're just going to have to adapt, I think, is, is what I'm telling recruiters, is that, that you can't put the genie back in the bottle at this point. Uh, the market is trending in a direction that favors more worker power, and pay transparency laws are a reflection of that. Yeah. Andrew, thank you so much for all of this. You, you uh, Once again, you always deliver on, um, you know, painting the picture at a macro, you know, high level, but 
taking that down to the HR and TA leaders desks and, you know, what it means. And that's, uh, that's helpful. I, you know, I certainly uh, learned a few things today uh, and I'm sure they, uh, they uh, will have as well. So um, in closing, any, any other quick tips or, or things as we look into 2023 that you would, you would, you would end with? The the only the only wild card thing that I'll end with, and this is kind of a, a worst case scenario. Well, I want to end with some downside risk, right? Like, okay. what are the possibilities that the paint the picture I painted won't come true? That it'll be way worse. And I think mm-hmm. there's three downside risks that I'd watch. Um, number one is China. China has ended its zero COVID policy, and we're seeing a huge uptick in cases and and, and sadly deaths in China. And how that could spill over for the global supply chain and trade linkages um, is uncertain. I, I I can't predict the future. I have no crystal ball. But but the 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 2020 uh, Chinese reckoning with COVID is really something to watch as a downside risk. That's one. Um, the second thing, of course, is the war in Ukraine and how that could escalate. Uh, mm-hmm. And would that bring in other NATO powers? Would uh, conflict expand. Of course, that's a downside risk because if that were to happen, we'd have a further spike in energy prices and cascade through inflation, et cetera. So that's a second downside risk. I think it's really, it's really worth, uh, it's really worth mentioning. And and the third and important uh, downside risk uh, for the United States, because we mentioned po- polarized politics, mm-hmm. is this debt ceiling fight we're seeing right. play out. I think yesterday the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen mentioned that we've hit our debt limit and that we have to do. Um, kind of extraordinary measures is quote unquote what they call it. But it's really several months until June, until we actually are at the precipice of potentially defaulting on our debt obligations for the first time in, in the United States' history. That would be a cataclysmic economic event that would trigger a financial crisis, et cetera. So I, I don't mean to end on a sour note, but I do think it's <laughs> somewhat to like kind of you know cover our basis here. There are downside risks, like just in life. Like if you go out driving, there's risk of a of a yeah. crash. So I just want to mention those risks. Overall, though, I think assuming those three downside risks don't happen, I think we're going to have a slowing economy, but narrowly avert a recession in the U.S. and the labor market will continue to be strong. Wow. Well, that's that's uh, that's great news, and uh, I appreciate the balance because you know. Uh, None of us can predict the future, uh, but you've given us many, many good uh, 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 things to watch. Uh, you know, triggers to look out for, and uh, and and I, I know we all appreciate that. Andrew, thank you for your time. Uh, where can folks? Uh, what's the best place to go to learn more? Recruitonomics.com. All right, excellent. Well, always a pleasure. Uh, I'll look forward to our next conversation. Thank you. And thanks for everybody who's watching or listening. Thank you, George. Appreciate it.